connect to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm all right. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversy, Super Bowl trailers. Uh, let's be honest, half the reason to watch the Super Bowl at this point is the ads, and half the reason to watch the ads is for the trailer premieres. We all love trailers. Ever since Independence Day blew up the White House in the midst of then-high discontent with Washington's performance, no idea what that's like, uh, and Morpheus told us no one could be told what the Matrix is. We, we gotta experience it for ourselves. We've all kept an eye on the big games, big movie reveals. Uh, one trend that is is growing more prevalent that I've really grown to dislike, showing like 15 seconds of a film and then say, go watch the full trailer on YouTube. I d just spend the money on the ad spot. That's why you're just, I don't want to have to go to YouTube. I, I want to watch Deadpool 3 or Deadpool vs. Wolverine or whatever they're, whatever they're calling this movie. I just want to watch the ad on the TV where I'm watching everything else. That's all I want. Just give me that. Uh, another trend I have grown to dislike, the constant effort to hide the fact that films are part ones. Uh, this happened recently with Dune, right? A movie that was going to be split into two parts. And you knew it was going to be split into two parts if you read the trades or you read the nerd gossip sites or you were kind of aware of it on Twitter, but you would not have had any idea if you had just watched the trailers, uh, or watched the TV ads, looked at the posters and the billboards. I remember being, this is a true story, I remember being in the movie theater when part one started playing. And so, the, like, you know, it's the title, it's like Dune, the movie title card, and then appearing underneath it, part one. And when that happened, a guy that was like just behind me, like just to my right, he was like, I heard him literally out loud say, wait, what? No idea. He was not happy. Uh, Wicked did just that in its trailer, which is also very kind of downplaying, strenuously downplaying that it's a musical, though I, I can't. I don't know how you can really downplay it that much. It's like the biggest Broadway hit in, I don't know, 10, 15 years. <laughs> the biggest trend of the year is the continuation of intellectual property grabs. And look, some of these will be fun, right? I like the trailer for Twisters because it looked like big dumb, goofy fun, like the original Twister. I like the trailer for Despicable Me 4 because my kids Ugh. love love the Minions. Love the Ugh, Minions. They sunny. love the Minions. And uh, they're they're excited to watch the Minions do Minion things. And I'm excited to sit in a movie theater for 90 minutes and watch them be excited. Uh, my children were not enthused for A Quiet Place Day 1. <laughs> Looks way too scary for them. They were like, oh my God, well, we're not going to go see that movie. I'm like, no, you're not going to go see that movie. You're right. And some of them, some of these IP grabs might even be great, right? Uh, the Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes trailer, really good. Like that. I like those movies. I'll probably like this one. But it, they do kind of all give off this whiff of worn outness that we're all dealing with at the multiplex. Uh, Alyssa, there were some original films that got some trailer play in this. Which of the three are you most looking forward to? Monkey Man, that's the Jordan Peele produced uh, action, John Wick in Mumbai film starring Dev Patel. Uh, the Fall Guy, which is the new David Leitch uh, directed movie about the stuntman who has to uh, do stunts to save the day. And then If, the John Krasinski family kids film that looks amazing. I can't wait to see it. Alyssa, which of those three original movies are you most looking forward to? I am sufficiently excited for Monkey Man uh, that I told my husband that that's what we would be doing on his 40th birthday because that's when it was released. Uh, come on, Dev Patel, an actor I love, doing his like John Wick in Mumbai passion project with Jordan Peele. Are you kidding me? Of course I'm incredibly excited for that movie. I mean, 
yes, is John Wick's sort of IP at this point and that every, everyone wants to make a, like, I suddenly murder a lot of people very stylishly movie. Yes. On the other hand, like Dev Patel doing it, I am so sold, baby. I am there. Um, Matt, I love you. I will not actually make your 40th birthday all about Monkey Man, but I'm very excited for it. I think you should definitely have a Monkey Man party <laughs> for your husband. I feel like Monkey Man, Monkey Man 40th birthday. Uh, the Monkey Man trailer does look pretty good. There's an interesting backstory there, Peter. Are you are you aware of the backstory on this movie? Should I? Can I fill you in? This movie was uh, scheduled for streaming, and then Jordan Peele saw it and was like, no, this deserves a much bigger release. Uh, I want to bring it under my banner, and now it is getting a theatrical release in April, which great, because movie theaters need product. They especially need product that looks uh, pretty good, like this. Yeah. Uh, are you excited for If, the John Krasinski Imaginary Friends movie? So the, the concept here is... We all have imaginary friends when we're kids and when we grow up and we forget about them. But one little girl with the power of her moxie and cuteness is going to get everybody to remember their imaginary friends and bring them all back to life. It will not be as good as Harvey. That's all that matters. So first of all, what Alyssa said. Second of all, I believe at some point in this podcast's history, I pitched a uh, like a franchise of gunned stuffed bears as like the as like an extended movie universe and i'm very sad that if is not that because i had a bunch of gunned stuffed bears who were my imaginary friends as a kid and actually several of them are still here in my home office sitting on the my comic book shelf because i'm that big a nerd should uh, they start a podcast a, with my gunned stuffed bear who yeah. still lives in my yeah, house yeah let's let's do that we can do the voices for them um are we going to have to see if for this podcast because kid movies or something? Because kid movies are going to be the only things that open some weekends this year. Well, I mean, I, I feel like that's a, you know, that's a real auteurist project from John Krasinski. You know, we're going to get some some camera swoops and whatnot. Is it going to be Aliens? I don't think so. No, the Aliens are a quiet place I know, day just... one, which is interesting because we already saw what happened on a day one in a quiet place in the sequel. I don't. Did but we not talk about in a that? big city. Yeah, and also, and also, not a third time, right? Like, not, not <laughs> with Lupin and Yango. Yeah, this is totally correct, right? Like, you could do, you could do a hundred A Quiet Place movies that are just like a story from a different family in a different city each time, and you just put out, you could put out three of these a year. Like, here's here's the one in Washington D.C., right? Here's the one in San Diego. What happens when a retired assassin like is experiences? Day one of A Quiet yeah. Place, what happens when, like, a group of bros on their way to a bachelor party experience A Quiet Place? Like, all exactly. movies. Exactly. We place. can, we can, in, in the same way that Isaac Asimov uh, once postulated that science fiction wasn't a, a genre unto itself, but in fact could support any other genre, and then went, went and wrote a, a bunch of um, robot mystery novels in the spirit of Agatha Christie, which are actually some of the best non-Agatha Christie, Agatha Christie novels. Uh, like, uh, the the Quiet Place universe should be able to support all genres and all types of films. We, I want to see every movie remade as A Quiet Place. Uh, so I didn't realize I was going to say that when we started this pod 10 minutes well, ago. Well, I mean, I, I, it, it would be like the Prey franchise, which they, or the Predator <laughs> franchise, which they they was Prey, right? Which was like, what if a predator against some Comanches? And then we've got the, we, there's another one call it, coming called Predator Badlands, which is what if Predator versus like slightly in the future, 
uh, broken down society or something. I don't know. It's it's not not a hundred percent. I'm excited. Good. I like to pray. So the the thing that actually jumped out at me from this set of trailers, besides the fact that I want to see a quiet place, everything was um was Twisters. Twisters is in some ways the most interesting and the least interesting product here. And the least interesting is because what is the difference here between this and Twister? And the most interesting because it's like, oh, here is a, a really big budget, you know, a, a kind of a, an effects-driven, you know, kind of up-and-coming star-driven blockbuster that isn't a superhero film, isn't a conventional, you know, a franchise film, isn't isn't a family film either, right? It's the sort of thing that we used to see much more of and uh, and that studios haven't entirely stopped making. But it, it feels a little bit uh, old school and a little bit of a throwback. But as part of feeling old school and throwbacky, I was thinking back to the original Twister. If you guys remember when this movie came out, it was really billed as a big, uh, like a, a showcase for early CG effects. And there were, there were there were a bunch of practical effects in this too. But uh, the big tornado sequences were CG heavy back when that was still unusual. In you know, this was the mid nineteen nineties. And the movie looked great. I mean, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but like it, it really works as great popcorn cinema. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it, steals every scene. Bill Paxton's just great. Helen Hunt is like really it, kind of charmingly difficult in the movie and in a way that is just perfect. But it, it that movie in the 1990s looks really good. And what's amazing to me watching this trailer for Twisters, which is almost 30 years later, it doesn't look any better. The, the effects look not terrible. They just don't look, they don't look 30 years and like revolution upon revolution of computer effects work. Like we are generations past the effects that, that produced the original Twister and the original Twister looks basically just as good as Twister's. Yeah, I, we'll see. We'll see how it actually looks on the big screen. It's always kind of hard to tell with us. But I do, I it is funny that, you know, they... Twisters almost feels like an original in comparison to all the rest of these, even though it looks like the exact same movie as Twister. I mean, literally almost the exact same movie, right? Like, you got competing. You even got, like, the little uh, the little tiny things in the, the little sensors Small. that they send up, right? It's, they look exactly the same. I think these characters are playing, like, the kids, or one of them is the kid of the uh, Helen Hunt Bill Paxton character from the original. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I'm... What about Wicked? You know what? Uh, so, uh, Alyssa, do you have Wicked thoughts? Because I, uh, I have, n- I've never Alyssa seen. Alyssa has the, very the Wicked thoughts. <laughs> I have. Excuse I have, me. I have, I have no. I have no Wicked thoughts. I am. A, I'm a good boy. But the. Uh, but what? What is? What is interesting about that trailer is again, like I said, they're they're downplaying the fact that it's part one, which I think is smart. I think because audiences have do not like the whole part one thing, um, and uh, and they are kind of downplaying that it's a musical, though not entirely. There was some. There's some yeah. singing. There's some music. Well, and Defying Gravity has become you know one of these just sort of musical standards that is you know. Very, very familiar at this point. Um, I want to ask an even sort of a question that's even a step back from, like, why are they hiding it? That it's part one. Why does Wicked need to be a two-part movie? <laughs> I mean, other than to make money for the studio. Um, you know, this is something that functioned perfectly well as a, you know, a Broadway musical that you could see in a single setting. And so um, it's not even just, you know, hiding the ball, but 
the idea that this thing is going to have been bloated to two movies just feels real weird and unappealing to me. I am not a wicked head. Um, I actually read the book before it was adapted as a musical many, many, many years ago and don't really remember it. So don't have strong wicked feelings. It looks, I mean, like it looks okay. It looks fun. I like Ariana Grande. I don't know if she can act. This is not one that I'm going to like force you guys to see though. I will be like, maybe I will see Wicked at some point, but I definitely will not uh, force march you guys to the theater for this one. I, well, I got to be honest, there's a decent chance there won't be anything else playing. Yeah. Uh, and so we may, we may end up having to see it uh, regardless. Um, so, you know, fingers, fingers crossed for that one. Uh, so my, I, my I, plan to avoid Wicked is that we need to go back to our schedule and have a, a whole month of Dune 2 episodes. And I mean, just do Dune 2 month rather than being like Dune 2 and then some other movie. We four four episodes, and that will cover that will keep us going for a while, and then we can have like Twisters We could do month. the David Lynch <laughs> Dune. We could go back and revisit. Um did I actually do our Dune episode? Because I had my kid. I, I don't remember. think I taped our Dune episode, so maybe we should do an entire month of Dune. I, I, I believe that Chris Orr was there for the he, well, actually, I don't know, it, because I, I'm pretty sure it was the last movie you saw before you went on leave. Yeah, before I had my baby. So, we'll have to see. Yeah, I was a little surprised there wasn't a Dune trailer. Uh, just a reminder, hey, Dune, Dune's coming. Dune 2, coming soon. The big real sh shift in sea change is that there was one comic book movie trailer. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't even the full trailer, like I mentioned. It was, you know, it, Deadpool versus Wolverine, coming soon. Yeah. I, I I watched that trailer and I was like, ah, I really feel like the, the air is running out of the tires on these things. I, no, but they're going to revive it by making it meta. But it's, I mean, I, I, the Deadpool movies are immensely successful and, you know, good, good for them. And I like them just fine. You didn't um, knowingly I, chuckle when, when Ryan Reynolds said he was going to be Marvel Jesus? He's Marvel. He's Marvel Jesus. I'm, right when uh, they when they like were like, "Hey, we know that you guys think that our franchise has some problems, but Marvel Jesus is coming." That I don't know, guys. Win your heart. I don't know, guys. What do you What do you think? Hmm? Excited? Excited for Deadpool three? Uh, no. Yeah, there we go. That's what Sorry? I like to hear. <laughs> that's, the, that's the excitement in everybody's voice. All right, all right. So uh, you're you're. Uh, I want you to put yourself in the mind of the consumer. Put yourself in the mind of the customer. It's a hard thing to do because we're so, you know, we're such, uh, we see everything. So it's, it's a, but if you are sitting there, you are the, you're the customer. You got to pick one of these movies you're going to watch. Alyssa, which one of these trailers was the one that got you so excited? You're like, I got to go see this movie. I got I, I to gotta go see it. I mean, I've already said, do I have to pick a franchise one or can I just stick you with You can pick any, anyone. Monkey Man, obviously. Monkey Man. Okay, good. Uh, Peter, you're just, you're you're the guy who goes to the movie theaters twice a year. You're you're totally reliant on advertising to get you there. What movie did you see that you were like, I got to go see this? You're asking me to inhabit the mind of a person that I literally cannot possibly understand. Uh, no, I, I, I think the... <laughs> Somebody who goes to the movies twice a year? What? Um, no, I, I think uh, I think the movie that is going to overperform expectations is, in fact, Twisters. I think it will be a throwback with uh, modern star power in exactly the right way. And I think it is going to be timed well in a year where, n where films that are not uh, part of 
tired franchises. Yes, it's a franchise film, but it's not really connected to something that we've been watching for the last 10 years. And I, I think it will, I think that is the movie that is going to overperform out of this group. The movie I am most interested to see the performance of, and the, the one, frankly, that I'm most interested to see if it works, period, is The Fall Guy, which is the uh, the David Leitch-directed uh, original starring Ryan Gosling as a, as a stunt guy who is being directed by Emily Blunt, who is making this action movie. They've got to find the star of the movie who's been killed or so it's it's i i'm i wouldn't say i'm excited for this movie but i'm interested to see it because it is it, like it's an original film it is being sold heavily on star power and it's the sort of thing that we always say we want to see more of uh so i would be i would be happy for this to do well if it's good i don't know if it's going to be any good could be could be bad we'll see we'll see but that's what that's what you go to the movies for sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad folks they're not all going to be Argyles, but they're not all going to be Oppenheimers either. So, all right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday, uh, in which we are going to be discussing the state of film criticism, where you get genius lines like, they're not all going to be Argyles, but they're not all going to be Oppenheimers either. Is it too consensus-oriented, this film criticism racket? Should all critics be part of three-person teams offering a range of ideological and artistic opinions to their audiences? Who can say? I don't know. I, 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 can't, I can't make that call for you. But we got a lot of thoughts on this, maybe. Maybe we don't have many. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, and now on to the main event. The Zone of Interest. From director Jonathan Glazer comes this Holocaust film that never really shows you the Holocaust. Indeed, the whole film is a masterpiece of not showing, of withholding information from the viewer and letting them feel their way through what it's like to live next to unspeakable horror and to profit from unmentionable wickedness. Uh, the film is largely set on the outskirts of Auschwitz, where Rudolf Hess lives with his family. Uh, his wife, Hedwig, does the family shopping and keeps the maids in order. The children run around the garden she has built and down to the river for fishing and swimming. And Rudolf deals with bureaucratic headaches, as any manager does. Grandma comes over to stay and help out with the home. It's just a nice little family scene. Of course, the family scene here uh, involves, you know, going through the goods brought to Auschwitz by Jews scheduled for execution and deciding which furs they want to keep or which tubes of toothpaste might have diamonds hidden inside. The children's garden with its pool and water slides sit in front of a barbed wire fence where the workhouses in the crematoria sit behind it. The river that they go to occasionally washes up human remains. The, the bureaucratic headache that Rudolph is dealing with, we learn, uh, you know, just a, just a normal workplace headache as trying to figure out how to make the crematoria run 24 hours a day. Grandma's visit begins with her casually mentioning that the woman whose house she used to clean may have been sent to this camp. She ends it chugging vodka, horrified at the ever-burning blood-red smokestack in the middle distance. Um, a few folks have described the zone of interest as like a depiction of the banality of evil, uh, but I don't think that's right precisely. It's it's about active evil. It's about people acting evilly. Like, I'm sorry, there's nothing uh, banal about determining the most efficient method of burning corpses, and there's nothing banal about Hedwig's threats to the maid that her husband could scatter her ashes on the fields. Uh, the closest we get to that sort of banality is the grandmother, who realizes what is happening and flees. She can't take it, but the movie's not really about her. Um, again, what's what's masterful about the zone of interest is what it doesn't show. We hear gunshots in the distance constantly, but we never see who gets shot. We see trains gliding by on the horizon, their smokestacks steaming, but we never see the selections 
uh, at the train stops of who gets to live and work and who gets to die. Uh, early on, the help washes Rudolph's boots and bloody mud splashes off of them, but we never see whose blood it is or how it got there. Uh, we get a discussion of the crematoria without seeing burial pits. All in all, it creates uh, the sense, the sense of living life in the midst of horror without actually acknowledging it. So that's what's masterful about it. And it, it, it is a masterpiece of a sort. It's also, look, I, I feel weird saying this, but it's a little bit gimmicky because the horror of what we're seeing only really lands if you have a working knowledge of the Holocaust and its many terrors. As I wrote in my review of the film, it's almost like it is scattered with Easter eggs of the sort that you would get in a Marvel movie, right? Like that reference to Siemens or the bit about hiding diamonds in the toothpaste. There's the use of the song Sunbeams, which was actually written in Auschwitz, right? This is all the sort of thing that you're... Like you're supposed to watch it, and then maybe you nudge your neighbor and you go, "Hey, did you did you catch that? Did you understand what was? Did you do? Did you get this little bit of background information?" Um, and adding to that perversity is the way some of these things are played almost for laughs, uh, like as when Rudolph is in the river and the the piece of skull, the fragment of skull or whatever it is, bumps up against his leg and he like picks them up and he rushes them to the bath and they're all crying and yelling about not wanting to be scrubbed and they're scrubbing, or or the dark joke near the end where he uh, recounts an evening cocktail party to his wife and says that all he could think about was how high the ceilings were and how much gas it would take to kill everyone in the room. The thing is told with the cadence of a joke. It's like set up, unexpected punchline. It's, I look, it again, this is, this is just what the movie's doing. Richard Brody dismissed the zone of interest, the, the, the critic for The New Yorker. He dismissed it as uh, Holocaust kitsch, basically suggesting it's too clever for his, its own good. And I, I think he goes too far. But I did find it to be both successful and very distancing. Like, I appreciated what Glazer was doing, but was never really moved or horrified by it because it all seemed so calculated and at a remove. Peter, you, you told us over text message that if it hadn't been for the show, you would have walked out of the theater because it was too intense. Uh, what about it sparked that reaction in you? I'm like, I'm honestly kind of curious because I, I watched this and like kind of admired it, but also was just like, okay. Yeah, so to be clear, the reason I said that is not because I found the movie bad or inappropriate uh, or anything like that, but it's the intensity of it and the 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 focus of it. It is um, it is a it is a masterpiece of negative space in filmmaking because what it does is it forces you to think about what's not there or what's only barely there or what's hinted at. And um, as somebody who has, I don't know intense thoughts sometimes sort of the movie asks you to dwell on that and it's sort of it is constantly nudging you to think about the thing that it's not showing you and and as as many filmmakers who are just working in sort of more conventional genres uh, know that asking the the audience to imagine something that is terrible is often can be you know more um, more effective and more chilling than showing it to them and this movie puts that idea to great effect, um, you know, to powerful effect, I think, but about a, you know, a horror that is hard to capture, um, that is hard to describe, that you can you can put it in in words and sentences and numbers, but that is uh, that if you just put it on screen, you know, you we've you can watch Schindler's List and you can you can show it that way, but it, there is. A lot of people, I actually literally heard people as I walked out of the theater talking about the the banality of evil, but the quote that came to mind for me <clears throat> was uh, Theodore Adorno's quote about the impossibility of writing poetry after Auschwitz. And this was a movie that seems to be kind of grappling with that idea and the the way that you can't 
you can't use representational or even even the kinds of art that are that are meant to be a little bit beyond representational to to kind of truly capture it. And so what it does is it captures it at the fringes and at the margins. Uh, it's sort of right. It's it's the thing that's just outside of your eye. There's so much masterful kind of craft work in this movie that that works to this effect. You will often see these shots uh, in the yard, for example, where that are so perfectly composed to show you mostly a garden. It's mostly a beautiful shot of a, you know, a, a very nice home with a manicured lawn. And then just in the corner, off to the very edge of the shot, there's a little bit of barbed wire that you can catch. And that's obviously just very intentional, even though a lot of that stuff was uh, was shot um, somewhat extemporaneously with cameras just sort of placed around the house and the yard and and then a lot of uh, improvisation. Um, and that, but I, it's also I, true in the shots of the natural world. I mean, this yeah. is frequently a movie that shows you the characters in settings where they can't see everything, right? I mean, when you have them coming back from the lake and they're coming through this sort of tall growth um, or coming, you know, up from a valley um, or, you know, sort of in a road through woods. It's not even when there isn't a sort of fragment of the horror happening on the just the tiniest corner of the screen. This is a movie where your the character's vision is always obscured in some way. Um, it's, you know, it's a long hallway. It's, it's like a narrow hallway. There's There's just always something sort of occluded. Right. Shot, Frankly, even, e- even even in some of the river shots, there's one bit. Sonny talked about the one that's a little bit more um, explicit with the the bone fragment, but then there's another one where something simply washes through the river. And you know what it is, and it's it's clear, and there is a color change that that happens. And the, the movie again is just suggestive in this way that I I do think is is quite powerful because it forces you to dwell on it. Um, and I think in in some ways, you know, the movie is obviously. It's very literally and specifically about what it what it's about, right? It's it's about the it's about Auschwitz. It's about the Holocaust, but it is also about something a little bit larger, which is about the the ways that people can blind themselves to horrors that they that are just out of sight. They they can kind of see, you know, they kind of know about. They hear the sounds; it's all around them. They can't be, um, you know, they, they can't be unaware. But they are, but they just choose to go on living. And um, you know, I mean, reading some of the coverage of this movie, it seems like what Jonathan Glazer wanted to do was to talk about, was to make a film about how people could go about living while this was happening right next to them. And the way they go, the way they do that is they just sort of pretend it's all very normal. Um, and it's it asks it asks viewers, I think, to think about what what it is that they are allowing to remain just out of sight beyond the wall that they know is happening. Um, it's, it is a powerful and audacious and immaculately crafted film. It is also one that is, that is really quite uncomfortable to watch. And I, I think in some ways, fairly inappropriately, this, this is not a comfortable topic and it should not be easy. But, uh, but it, it's, it was a pretty intense experience. And I think one of the few movies that uh, we've watched, that I've watched really as, as an adult, where I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about the experience in a lot of ways. Alyssa, what did, what did you make of The Zone of Interest? I think it's remarkable. Um, and I wanted to go back to what you said about the sort of the invocation of 
Hannah Arendt's phrase, the sort of the banality of evil, which um, comes from her reporting on the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was brought to trial for his role in the Holocaust. And what she meant by that phrase, the banality of evil, was that Eichmann, who had helped carry out this world historical monstrosity, was himself kind of a banal figure. He was not particularly handsome. He was not particularly intelligent. He had not done well in school. He didn't bear any particular personal animus for Jews or ideological commitment. He was this bland little person who ended up being the architect of this monstrous thing. And the zone of interest comes at that the relationship of mundanity and evil from a slightly different direction. Um, because it's not about the Hosses as people, really, but it's about the ways in which evil can be incorporated into household routine and invoked to incredibly petty ends, right? And one of the reasons the scene of, you know, Mrs. Haas trying on, Hedwig, you know, trying on this dead Jewish woman's fur coat and trying out her lipstick is so repulsive is not just because it's, you know, this is a woman who's having someone else loot dead bodies for her, but because she is willing to commit a moral enormity in service of her own vanity and acquisitiveness, right? And when Rudolph is transferred, she throws a tantrum because she finally has the house and the garden that she wants. And she says, you know, we're doing what the Fuhrer wanted us to. We're, you know, we're pursuing this living space. And, you know, I won't do it. Say that, I, you know, say that I have to be able to keep my house, right? And the idea that someone could be so radically self-centered that they would want to keep living next to Auschwitz because of this, you know, bourgeois little garden that they've planted and the little swimming pool that they built for their kids and the dead Jewish women's clothes that she can steal is so nasty and repulsive and overwhelming, right? I mean, it's, I mean, um, I like Christian Friedel a lot and I don't know if either of you watch Babylon Berlin, um, but he plays this like kind gay crime scene photographer in Babylon, Berlin. And so the sort of juxtaposition between his performance in that show in which he's very good and as this, again, sort of like mild-mannered, committed bureaucrat here, you know, is interesting. But I really think the movie belongs to Huller because she is, you know, Hedwig Haas is the person who most exemplifies the routinization of evil and its routinization for incredibly stupid, childish, petty little domestic ends, right? I mean, this is a woman for whom the Holocaust is a mean of, means of satisfying not even her needs, not a deep grievance, not, you know, keeping her children out of poverty, but her pettiest wants. And it is really a remarkable performance. Um, in that sense, I actually think think it's better than her performance in Anatomy of a Fall, which um, for which she's gotten more praise. But she is she's playing someone who 
is not quite human in her utter humanity here. Um, and I think she is the key to why the movie is so powerful and disturbing. I think she is, she delivers the best performance. And also I, I, I agree that I think that this is actually a better performance than Anatomy of a Fall for the reasons you mentioned, but also I, also as a contrast to the the grandmother who, you know, she shows up and once she realizes what is actually happening at Auschwitz, like literally just uh, takes to drink and can't sleep and then leaves without telling anyone. It's just like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. And, and, and it's, 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 it's weird to say this again, this, this movie strikes a number of weird reactions in me. It's weird to say this, but it's the grandmother figure almost feels like the closest thing to an audience surrogate in the film where like you could, you could imagine your being in that situation kind of, uh, as opposed to the wife, who again, I, I like, I think she just comes across as straightforwardly wicked. Yeah. In this. But it's also, and it makes a very interesting contrast with the scenes of the movie, at the end of the movie, with the women who are cleaning the, you know, the museum at Auschwitz. And what is, what is so interesting about those scenes as an inversion, it works on two levels, right? I mean, the sort of consumer goods that Hedwig covets and pursues are, you know, they've aged, they're presented en masse, they're detached from human beings who wore them. They've become evidence of a crime as opposed to consumables. But also, the you know, you never see Hedvig doing domestic labor. She has other people doing it for her. And so for the movie to focus not at the end, not on people who are visiting Auschwitz or on survivors, but people who are doing domestic work in service of the memory of the dead, is a really, I mean, it's very stark and unnerving, but it's also kind of beautiful in the sense that it is not this domestic fantasy. It is, you know, it is not acquisitive, but it's routine care in service of the people who were murdered and in service of their memory. And I found that very moving and that juxtaposition very moving. What did you guys think of the uh, the the little subplot about the the girl planting the apples shot entirely in a sort of negative, not quite night vision? Well, it's interesting in part because we know that some prisoners are killed for fighting over one of the apples, right? And so, or a pear or something. And so it's both very striking, but it suggests that there's something futile about resistance. Um, it doesn't. So I, it's, yeah, the the attempt to sort of turn it into kind of a ghost story at the end um, is unsettling. I'm not quite sure what it aimed for. And so I don't entirely know what I think about it. I find it visually very affecting and spooky. This is my problem with those sequences. Again, is that, so as Peter mentioned, they're, they're shot basically in infrared uh, in, in, in kind of black and white, and they're... They are designed to, again, be aggressively different than what we've seen so far. But it just, it feels like Glazer calling attention to the, the artificiality of it all in a way that there's, there's a critique of Schindler's List that goes, the movie is like incredibly uh, effective and compelling, and it's also a cheat. And the way that it is most a cheat is in the the little girl in the red jacket, right? Who you see walking through the uh, ghetto, and then you see later her body on the the pile of of dead bodies. 
and that is just Spielberg like calling attention to you know he's he's basically showing off, and that is almost how I feel about this these sequences. I it's not it's not just that it's not that they show the futility of resistance or the the inability to affect change unless you are in a position of power, but but also that it's you know it's so weirdly unnecessary to the rest of it. I, I, I did not care for that, just as I didn't care for the sequences where the screen turns to red, uh, or the even even the bit about... So, uh, Alyssa, you mentioned um, the, the close of the film. What happens is Rudolph Hess looks down a hallway, and it's like he's looking into the future or sees the future looking back at him, and we cut to the uh, museum at Auschwitz where it is being cleaned. And again, I... I I appreciate what Glazer is going for here and the distancing nature of looking into the past and judging judging the past and the, the what what the weight of the judgment of the future on him but I at the same time again it was just like I don't I don't dig it I, I don't I don't and I, I that's how I felt about a lot of this movie I feel awkward saying uh, negative things about a movie that I both think is a masterpiece in a very specific way, and also, like, think it doesn't work because of the qualities that make it a masterpiece. Hmm. I found some of that formal stuff to be the some of the most interesting stuff in the movie, and maybe that's just because that's sort of where my mind goes during when it's, it, rather than focusing on some of the more sort of difficult stuff there, but uh, the, the negative plot line there seemed to me like a or you know the, the story of the little girl shot a negative. I mean, it's a little bit obvious, but it's right like this is the inversion of the rest of the story, right? This is the this is the person who is there trying to do good and trying to make something um, moral out of the most horrific situation imaginable. And then, of course, she pulls the piece of music out, uh, which is apparently a real thing that happened. Um, uh, or, or at least pretty close to a real thing that happened is that 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 was a piece of music that was written um, by someone in Auschwitz and then and then uh, made it out and was able it was you know was something that could be played um, and so seeing that as a sort of in some ways as Glazer saying it's not actually necessary in these circumstances to be the person or to be the family who acts like. A, Hedvig does right. It's not act like you can you can try to somehow or another to be better and to to know what's happening and to do a little bit and maybe maybe it still is not maybe it doesn't do much but it is a sort of a it is it is there to not just be sort of relentlessly horrific. Um, but uh, I, I also I mean I, again I just I find Glazer's formal. Exp uh, work so fascinating always have right if you're if you've looked at his i would just encourage uh viewers to go look at his commercials and look at his some of his, some of his past work uh, music videos for radiohead that sort of thing he is so formally inventive and um to see it put to uh such powerful ends here is um is really incredible even if i found it incredibly difficult to watch okay so what do we think about Zone of interest. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? Alyssa? Um, I think it's excellent, but also if you don't feel you can watch it, that's totally understandable. Peter? Thumbs up, and, you know, like I said, I, I might have walked out, but uh, I, I am glad I saw it, um, and uh, it's a very difficult movie. Um, I think it might not be for everyone, but probably would have made my top ten list if I'd seen it before we did our top tens. 
Uh, again, I, I give this kind of a half-hearted thumbs up in insofar as I do think it is it is great and also doesn't entirely work. Uh, but hopefully, maybe maybe it gets people to... I don't know. I, I, I hope people check it out and give it a chance. But I also do not dispute that it has it has issues. All right, that is it for today's show. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Bye.